So I'm sure after that reading, you are wondering what on earth? Um, this is a very uh, strange, uh, very obscure, long uh, passage of scripture. And, uh, you know, here it is, it's the, it's the long weekend, uh, and we're reading, um, you know, the Elijah, we're, we're continuing our Elijah series uh, in a story that has nothing to say about Elijah. So this is, uh, welcome to church, uh, <laughs> I hope, uh, but I, we're going to get into this passage, there's going to be some really uh, interesting things that uh, we're going to learn. Uh, but, you know, it, it was tempting for us, uh, you know, as we started to put this sermon uh, series together as we looked at the schedule. You know, I, I looked at uh, the dates that I was going to be uh, speaking, and I was hoping, you know, I was going to get uh, the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal, right? It's a classic, or or last week's story, right, where Elijah runs away from Jezebel and he hears the still small voice. I mean, these are great, very familiar passages of scripture. But as I looked at the schedule, it said that I was going to preach on the wars between King Ahab and King Ben Hadad. And I just have to say, um, it's not even a, a very, very familiar passage of Scripture for me either. And so I'm, I'm assuming that uh, for a lot of you, this is a very unfamiliar passage. It's, it's kind of, uh, it's got some really interesting, strange things in it. And um, so, so why, not, why not just skip it? You know, you might be wondering, like, why even do this? A lot of churches do. They would just skip over this uh, passage of Scripture and... Um, you know, one of the commitments we have as a church is, is we want to be rooted in the Bible and um, we want, we believe uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17. Uh, it says this, it says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Um, and so when Paul says that, he's talking about the Old Testament. And, uh, and so we, we just want to believe, even these obscure passages, that, that, uh, that this is God's Word, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, uh, that God has something for us in these, these even strange passages. So we want to dive into this today. Now, uh, just to bring you up to speed, if you've been tracking with the series on Elijah, uh, so far in Elijah's story, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, he, he, he and King Ahab and the prophets of Baal had a big contest on Mount Carmel. And uh, Elijah um, went against these 400 prophets of Baal and, and they had a big contest and God showed up in an amazing way, sent fire down from heaven onto the altar that Elijah doused with water. And so, you know, King Ahab realized, you know, Yahweh is the true God. The Lord is God, not Baal. And so uh, after this, you would assume, you know, um, Ahab and, and Jezebel, his wife, would turn to the Lord, but they didn't. In fact, they threatened Elijah. Elijah runs away. We learned about this last week that he went over to Mount Sinai as the place where Moses met with God. And when Moses met with God, there was lightning and earthquake and all these things. But Elijah, um, he, he didn't, the Lord didn't speak to him through those things. Instead, spoke to him through this still small voice and told him to go and, you know, anoint Elisha, and, uh, who's going to be the next prophet. And, um, and a king of Assyria. And so the next story, uh, that's, we don't really have Elijah. Elijah's kind of AWOL. Um, we, he, he's probably off at Mount Sinai still. And, um, and now in the meantime, we get this story of, of what's happening back in Israel with, with King Ahab. Now, if you were a neighboring country to Israel at this time, you, you know that uh, Israel has just gone through a three-year famine. 
And so, you know, if you're kind of thinking to yourself, man, you know, I'd love to expand our kingdom, you know, our, our power, which is what autocrats always do. Uh, a right after famine's a good opportunity for you uh, to do this. So this is what Ben-Hadad II, the king of Syria, he's thinking this and he begins, we begin reading this passage and, and King Ben-Hadad from Syria, he comes down with 32 other kings allied with him and they attack and they besiege and surround Samaria in Israel, northern Israel. Ben-Hadad sees a chance to make uh, Israel into a vassal kingdom. So a vassal state or a vassal kingdom is, is allowed to keep its kind of own identity, but it, it's stripped of its power. It's put under the control and subordinated to another state or kingdom. So think of kind of what Chechnya is to Russia. Uh, so that's what he wants to do. And so what we're going to do um, is just walk through this long story, kind of just scene by scene, just kind of summarize and, and make some observations, look at a couple of key passages. And then we're going to learn uh, three things uh, later on. So first, let's walk through this again. Scene one, it happens in Samaria. This is the capital city of northern uh of northern Israel. And so Ben-Hadad comes, he besieges the city, he surrounds it, and he offer, he asks demands. He says for King Ahab to hand over his women, his children, uh, all of his wealth. And Ahab meets this threat. He, he first consents to it, but then Ben-Hadad makes further demands. And so Ahab's advisors step in and say, man, don't listen to this. Don't consent to this. And so Ahab, he has a, a kind of a rare act of courage here. He says, let not him who straps on his armor boast himself as him who takes it off. In other words, you know, hey, don't, don't talk a big game when the game hasn't even started yet. So this, uh, this act of courage uh, happens for Ahab, and, uh, and this incites Ben-Hadad. He, he, he prepares his forces, and it also provokes Yahweh to come and to send one of his prophets with a message to Ahab. The prophet soon... Uh, visits Ahab, and this is the message he gives. He says in verse 13, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen all this great multitude, this army of the Syrians, great big army? He says, Behold, I will give it into your hand this day. You shall know that I am the Lord, Yahweh. Now, notice here God's character right off the bat. Uh, king Ahab has not been a, a faithful king. Uh, he has not been... <laughs> Uh, faithful to God at this point in the story at all. He's done nothing but evil. And yet God here offers to protect Ahab. He offers him another chance. This is a chance for him to, to come to know him. So he'll protect his city. He'll protect their women, their children from this invading army. And notice the end result that, that God desires for Ahab is that he would know that Yahweh is God. Or we could even say, that God is Yahweh, God is the Lord. No other God out there, no other, uh, Baal is not God, God is Yahweh. Uh, see, anytime you see uh, the word Lord in all capital letters, by the way, in your Bible, it's a stand-in word for God's divine name, Yahweh. The name he first gave to Moses at the burning bush, that's where it comes from. And Yahweh gives Ahab victory so that Ahab will know him. Now, Ahab responds to this message, and he asks how this is going to be accomplished. And so God's response is, hey, here's what you're going to do. It's kind of a classic, you know, God plan. He says, uh, you know, your small army, uh, well, it's actually going to be your young, your inexperienced officers are going to lead the way with your small army, and you're going to defeat their big army. 
Uh, the word servants in verse 14, it actually means young men. So the, the young servants of the governor, the, the young men of the governors of the districts, they're the young officers who are going to lead the way. So God's going to show his faithfulness to protect them, to defend them despite their small size and their lack of experience. So then we switch over to scene two. We get into the hills of Israel, and this is, uh, this is what happens. The scene shifts, and, and Ben-Hadad is, is hanging out with his army buddies. You know, they're around the city, and uh, it's the hottest point of the day, and he's flaming drunk with all his buddies. And these young men approach, and it seems like there's going to be a peace talk. But instead, these young men attack, and... Israel's army joins them and the, the element of surprise is with them. And so Israel's army comes and, and, and basically just completely uh, just rocks these guys. And, and Ahab, or sorry, Ben-Hadad, he barely escapes with his life. He gets out of there, but Ahab is warned that it's not over yet. He says the, the, uh, a prophet is sent to him again, warns him, hey, in the spring, Ben-Hadad's going to return, and um, you got to be ready for this. So we, we, we shift to scene three, where it, that following spring, this is exactly what happened. Ben-Hadad's hanging out again, and he says, Ah, oh, I, know, I know why we lost this battle. It's because Israel's gods have no jurisdiction, or they have jurisdiction in the hills, but they don't have jurisdiction down in the valleys, in the plain. So he says this, he says in verse 23, Their gods are gods of the hills, and so they were stronger than we. But let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. Well, them's fighting words for Yahweh. So Yahweh sends a man of God who's a prophet, and he, he gives, sends it to Ahab with another message. And this man of God comes near and says to the king of Israel, he says, Thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said, The Lord is a God of the hills and not a God of the valleys, Therefore, I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Notice again what Yahweh says here. Why will he give the multitude into Ahab's hand? So that he will know that the God of Israel is Yahweh. He is the Lord. Yahweh is not a God who has limits. He is the God who has no limits. He's the God of the hills and the valleys. Yahweh defeats this great army again with a small fighting force. Says that they look like two little flocks of goats. And he does this in the area called Aphek. And Aphek actually lies just at the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee in the plains of Syria. Uh, so it's actually in Syria's territory at this point. And um, this location is actually really significant in Israel's history. It belongs to a former region uh, called Bashan, where back in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, Moses and Israel, they came, come across uh, this guy named Og. He's, a, he's actually a giant, and he, he's the king of Bashan. And uh, the Lord wipes them out. He, in fact, it says they devote them to destruction because Og is part of this line, this bloodline that is, is really wicked, and that place is known for being a really, really wicked place. And so... God says to completely wipe them out. This phrase is used of specific places and people, this phrase, devoted to destruction. Um, it's, it's not always used, but it's used in specific places where there's irreparable evil, and God has sentenced them to be judged. So we get to see that Ben-Hadad is, is part of this long lineage of wicked kingdoms. God wants them to be devoted to destruction in Aphek. 
Now, after all that Yahweh has done for Ahab to, to show protection to him, to save him, his women, his children, his city, his nation, you would think Ahab is going to now turn to Yahweh, right? Yahweh's good. Yahweh is God. I'll worship him alone. But he, he doesn't do that. <laughs> this doesn't happen. After the second victory, Ahab sees an opportunity, right? He's like, wow, you know, the tables have turned now. And now he sees an opportunity to make Syria into his vassal kingdom. So rather than bring Ben-Hadad to justice, he calls him brother and he enters into a partnership with him. And he gives him, he gives him some of his land and he, he wants an ally because he, he's worried about a future nation that's assembling in the north called Assyria. So he wants to ally with Syria so that his forces are stronger and he fails to trust God and he goes against God's word. So then we, we, we swing over to another scene. All of a sudden the story is interrupted. Um, this failure of Ahab, it, it prompts God to command another prophet in what is without question the most bizarre part of this story. Uh, the scene switches to this guild of prophets. They're called the, the sons of the prophets. And, and this phrase is used a number of times throughout First and Second Kings. The sons of the prophets are a guild, a group of prophets. So one of, one of the prophets says to another prophet, he says, uh, strike me, hit me. And the other prophet refuses. And so the first prophet says, okay, well, God's going to send a lion and kill you for your disobedience. And, th and this happens and it shows that the prophet's word is true. And then this prophet gets hit by another prophet. So he looks bloodied and then he goes bruised and bloodied over to King Ahab. And he kind of shows him this living parable of, uh, of Ahab's sin for letting Ben-Hadad go. So the prophets, uh, they would often do this, this kind of dramatic reenactments to, to serve as a warning to God's unfaithful kings. Now, there's some just undoubtedly very strange things going on there. We're going to explain a little bit about, a bit about that later. But that's, that's the story. That's the story in a nutshell. Uh, so we've walked through this scene by scene. What, what can we learn from this? Uh, what, what does God want to challenge us with? What does he want to encourage us with? How can we apply this faithfully to our lives today? Uh, so we said that this story is a story really about spiritual defeat. Uh, King Ahab he loses by winning. You know, he wins in some ways, but he really loses in the end in this battle. The Lord fights and wins the battle for him, but in the end, it's a defeat for Ahab. It's kind of a cautionary tale. Um, and so we're going to learn some things here about some spiritual defeat. See, spiritual defeat can be expected when, we're going to look at three things. Number one, when we use God instead of know him. Number two, when we limit God's power and presence instead of trust him. And number three, when we refuse God's word instead of obey his word. So first, uh, when, we use God's, when we use God instead of know God, you know, we can expect spiritual consequences, spiritual defeat. Notice throughout this story, uh, Ahab is, is just using God, right? He's, um, he's more than happy in the midst of a, of a crisis to accept God's help, um, but as soon as the threat's over, he, he, he's right back to doing the things that he always did. He's back to living life on his own terms. Uh, previous to this story, Ahab uh, lived in complete rejection of God. This is God's 
grace that comes to him and says, I'll save you again. I'll, 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 I'll save your kingdom. I'll save your women, your children. And so he, he really has no choice. So he, he accepts in the midst of this crisis and Yahweh rescues him twice. And as soon as the crisis is over, Ahab is looking out for himself again. He's rejecting God. What he has said, he's justifying his actions, just like King Saul did of old. And this is the thing about Ahab. He's fine with using God for his own advantage, for his convenience. But he really has no intention of of knowing God, of being in a relationship with God. He doesn't want a relationship with God. He's just, God's just handy to have around when you need him. Uh, For Ahab, God's kind of like a a fire extinguisher, right? Useful in case of emergency. And I I think that's true of a a lot of us. You see, God wants to make himself known. He wants us to know him. He wants us to know that he is there for us. Not just to know about him, but to know him. Uh, J.I. Packer said this about Uh, knowing God. He said, a little knowledge of God is worth a great deal more than knowledge about him. You know, a lot of us know about God, but do we know God? He wants us to know him, his existence, his character, his greatness, his power. He wants us to step into a knowledge of him, not just be on the sidelines. I was thinking about this a uh, uh, few days back. I, my, my brother, he got a new kayak. And so uh, we went out to the lake to go kayaking together. And, uh, you know, as we got it onto the lake, there was some wind that day. And so um, the waves were a little bit rocky. So we're, you know, working a little extra hard and we're starting to get a little hot. It was a hot day. And as we're kayaking, um, you know, we start looking at the water around us and going, man, it would be, be great to get in there right? It'd be great to get into the water. So we headed out kind of to this point and we docked and then we, we, you know, took our shirts off and jumped into the water and we dove in and man, to, to experience it, to dive in that, you know, that's what it's one thing to look at the water. It's one thing to be at the outside. It's another thing to dive into it and experience it. That's the difference between just knowing about God and knowing God to dive in To have God really, truly be not just a a useful tool to us, but for God to truly be our savior, our king, our friend, the lover of our soul, our judge, our master, our brother. That's what God wants to be for us. See, you can tell that God is just a useful tool, though, when you only turn to him in times of crisis and not other times. See, don't, uh, don't get me wrong, like when... When we're in a crisis, when we go through trial, often God will use those things in our life in powerful ways. We can come to know him closer even through a crisis. But the question is, when the crisis is over, do we still need him? Do we still want him? Do we still trust him? Or do we just go back to being captain of our own ship? Um, Spiritual shipwreck will be waiting for us if that's the way that we live. Um. There's an opposite danger, though, too, I think, in our culture today. Um, See, in today's world, we've been greatly influenced in the church by the prosperity gospel. And the the prosperity gospel says, you know, God is responsible for my happiness. You know, he's kind of like a genie who's supposed to just give me the things that I want. And so, you know, rather than clinging to God in a crisis, when crisis comes, we completely doubt him. We're not prepared to face any kind of discomfort or trial. 
This is one of the greatest struggles that many of us can have. It's wondering, is God still good in the midst of trial? Now look, we're going to struggle with that. I mean, when we're going through trial, we're going to wrestle with that. That's, that's normal. But a lot of times, uh, there's a lot of us who just completely disregard our faith. We, we don't cling to God in those moments. We just discard him. But here's the, here's the point, right? Whether it's trial or whether it's the joys of life, God wants to be there for you. He wants you to know him in the midst of it. He wants to care for you. He wants to be there with you. And he has a, a track record of coming through for you. So do we trust him? Do we know him in the midst of this? He wants to know you so much that, you know, years later, he, he actually came down to earth in the person of Jesus. And we called him God with us. So he wanted to know us. And then more than that, when Jesus died on the cross and rose again and he returned to heaven, he gave us his Holy Spirit so the Holy Spirit could literally live inside of us. His very presence in us. That's how much he wants us to know him and for him to know us. Okay, secondly, another thing we can learn here is, um, you know, we can expect spiritual defeat when we limit God's power and presence. The Syrian king, he he makes this statement, right? Um, you know, your God is a God of the hills. He's not a God of the valleys. And this prompts Yahweh, right, to, to save Israel a second time. It's kind of a cautionary tale, right? Like, be careful what you say. <laughs> uh, the Lord is listening. He, and he's out to prove something here to Ahab and to Ben-Hadad. He says, you know, he says he, he really wants Ahab to get this. He's not a God who's limited in his power and his presence, they think God is, you know, he's like a demigod. He's like one of the other deities that they worship, that he's localized, right? He, he's limited to a certain place. He's limited to a certain location. They have a very small view of who Yahweh is. See, what the scriptures, though, reveal to us over and over again is that it doesn't matter where we go. We, 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 could, we could explore the whole cosmos, we, we could look as far as the eye can see, right? The James Webb telescope just came out. We can see into distant galaxies and as far as we can explore, it doesn't matter how big it all gets. We can look at it all and say, look, God is still bigger and God existed before it all began. He is the I am. He has always been. He is in every hill, in every value, in every valley. He has power over it all. I love what David says in Psalm 139. He says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I send to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed and Sheol, the grave, you're there too. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there, your hand shall lead me. Your right hand shall hold me. See, often um, we can limit God's power and presence. David is just saying, it's too wonderful for me to think of the thought that, God, you are everywhere. You're literally up in the cosmos holding galaxies together. That's the God of the Bible. 
But see, we limit him. We limit what he can do. Maybe in our, our family, in our marriage, we think, man, God, God isn't here in this situation. God, God can't change this. He can't move. He can't work here. Maybe as you're trying to share your faith with someone or someone in your family that you really want them to come to know the Lord and you just think, man, they're just so far from God. I, they just can't, they can't do it. God can't do anything there. Or maybe, you know, it's trusting God's timing, right? What's interesting in this story with Ahab is God doesn't just defeat his enemies all at once. He, it takes two battles. It takes some waiting. There's military strategies involved, and yet Yahweh is orchestrating it. He's blessing it. He's making it all happen. But do we trust he's still present? He's still powerful, even while we're waiting for the timing. Or maybe we limit his ability to take care of us so we can rest and we can have a break. We just keep working, working, working till we burn out because it's all on us. But do we trust in God's presence and his power to take care of us? So let's remember he's, he's God. He's taking care of sparrows. He's taking care of flowers. He loves us down to the ants. He's the God who reigns on a million hills and valleys. He is the God who holds stars and galaxies in his hand. Trust in his power and his presence with you. Uh, number three, refusing God's word instead of obeying his word is another way we can expect to be spiritually defeated. Um, let's just think about Ahab's compromising and his partnering with Ben-Hadad. And let's also think a little bit about this prophet who's killed by this lion. So, um, yeah, at first glance, I mean, these stories are a little, uh, they're a bit jarring, right? Um, I mean, it seems like Ahab is... Seems even like he's being a bit merciful here, right? He, Israel is, is, is known by the kings of Syria as being merciful, and that, and that seems like a good thing. I mean, mercy, forgiveness, these things are, are huge biblical themes. And, and James 2.13 tells us, you know, mercy triumphs over judgment even, right? That it's greater than, than judging others is having mercy for them. So it would seem God here is being unfair. You know, it, it seems like he's giving consequences to Ahab for showing mercy to an enemy. But aren't we, aren't we to love our enemies, Jesus said. So keep in mind here, um, God has determined, though, that this man, this Ben-Hadad, he, he deserves justice for his crimes. To let someone who is the equivalent of a war criminal, who, who's unrepentant, and just let him off scot-free. And, and then to reward him for his injustice is not what God has in mind. And there are some in this world whose evil reaches a point of no return. And God has determined that they will be punished. And I mean, thank God that he does, right? Like there are so many injustices and evils that we see in the news every day. And it, it's so great to know that God will have justice. He will set things right. But Ahab just refuses to listen to God's word, and that's why he is punished. Uh, it would also seem that this, the prophet, then we switch to this prophet, right? His refusal to strike his fellow prophet, we, I mean, that seems like a good thing again. I mean, if someone came up to you and said, hey, God told me to slap you in the face. I mean, you, you'd, you'd probably be a little skeptical. I, I don't think you would actually do it, right? And you would be wise to not do it, in fact. Um, see, 
we, we, we toss this language around a lot of time. God told me this, God told me that. And that's the kind of culture we live in, right? By the way, if you're a young adult and um, you want to date a girl, don't, don't come up to her and say, God told me that you're supposed to be my girlfriend. That, that's a bad idea. Um, but this is, this is kind of the church culture that many of us have grown up in. You know, God told me this, God told me that. And I think so when we read a story like this, and we kind of throw that phrase around willy-nilly. It's, it's a little shocking to us to see somebody who now is punished for, for not believing when someone said, God told me. Uh, so I'm going to do my best here just to make sense of this story and this lion attack. First, um, the, the request from one prophet to another prophet in this time to, to strike him, this seems strange to us, but, but it says it's at the command of the Lord. Now, if anyone is supposed to listen to the command of the Lord at this time, it's, it's the prophets. Not only that, but in the Old Testament, a prophet doesn't just say that God told them something willy-nilly. I mean, if, if they say something and it doesn't come true, there are severe consequences for them. If they pledge to speak on God's behalf and they're wrong, their life is on the line because it's serious business to say God says when he doesn't say. Um, so this fellow prophet should know this, he, and she should receive it as a true word from God in this time. Secondly, though, we also have to bear in mind what life looks like um, in this ancient, ancient historical time. See, the book of Kings, it's showing us a, a, a descent of Israel into spiritual and institutional decay, right? It's, uh, it's a huge breakdown, and that's what we see all through the book. The prophets are supposed to be the ones that are the last line of defense. They, they can be trusted and they hold the kings accountable. But what happens now when, when one of the prophets himself refuses to listen to the word? Uh, who holds accountable those who are supposed to hold everyone else accountable? It, it's difficult for us to imagine a world like this in an ancient time when all the accountability structures are gone. It what what can be done? It seems like in light of institutional breakdown and the absence of accountability, God brings accountability and punishment through a lion of all things, right? And if that sounds weird, actually, this happens like four times throughout the book of First and Second Kings. It even happens with some bears later, which we'll talk about in August. God's justice for his this institutional failure, it's meted out by God's power over the animal kingdom. And he sends a lion, which, which can also be a symbol of Yahweh's presence and kingship to kill this disobedient prophet. So both Ahab and this unnamed prophet, they refuse God's word and they are held accountable. You know, when any of us refuse God's word, I mean, we can expect some level of spiritual consequence, right? Uh, maybe not quite as severe as this. I mean, thank the Lord, right? We live... In a time of, I think, greater grace and there's different structures that are in place today that can hold us accountable in, in far more gracious ways. But, but there's a word here, there's a warning here for, I think, particularly for leaders. You know, James chapter 3 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. He says, look, like we're all fallen. And so, you know, be cautious as you try to take on a role of being a teacher, uh, especially a teacher of the word, because it's a, it's a great responsibility. And for those who have a greater responsibility, there's greater 
accountability. There's also greater honor for those who serve well, but for those who don't, there are greater consequences. Look, you may not be a pastor or an elder, but you might be a parent in charge of children. You might be a ministry leader in charge of a a youth group. You might be an employer in charge of employees. Those of us who have greater responsibility, we we need to remain faithful. You think of how many terrible consequences come from those who hold positions of power and responsibility when they themselves are unfaithful to God, when they fail to submit to God's word. You think of the many cults in our world and uh, how they lie to people, how myriads of terrible consequences come into people's lives on women and on children because of this grievous error. There There are pastors who use scripture to abuse people, to hold power over people, and they themselves don't even submit to those words. You know, sometimes people, we live over the scriptures, right? We live, we stand over the scripture instead of standing under the scripture. We can get caught up in being leaders and being people of power. We forget to be disciples, to come under God's word and to allow it to teach us and to obey it when it says to obey. Look, we, we all fall short in many ways. Um, and God knows this. And so he sent another lion. This lion was one who did not bring judgment, but who came to bear judgment. Though we fail to love, we fail to trust, we fail to obey. Jesus was the lion of Judah who took judgment onto himself when he died on the cross for us. Because of Jesus, we have hope. No matter whether we're in the hills, whether we're in the valleys, Jesus is with us and will give us the victory over our enemies, over the battles that we fight. Jesus loves us. See, if you're a Christian uh, listening to this, um, this is our hope, right? I mean, Jesus is our hope. And the great hymn says it in Christ alone. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck us from his hand. Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, we just thank you uh, that all of your word is God-breathed, is applicable for us to teach us. God, would you, would you help us to, to understand these obscure passages, to spend the time, the work to, to understand them well? God, we thank you for this, this story today. And we just pray that you would help us, Lord, to, to trust you, to know you, that we'd be more excited about knowing you than about what you can do for us. That, Lord, we would not limit your power and your presence in our lives. And that, Lord, we would listen and sit under your word as disciples. Uh, Jesus, we just thank you that you sacrificed yourself for our sins. We, We rest in your grace. Lord, what else do we have? We love your grace. So would you go with our friends today who are listening to this word? Would you encourage them? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.